Jonah. <laughs> Don't you love it? Uh, yeah, Jonah, <clears throat> chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found the ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. That's the reading of God's holy word. <clears throat> Once again, the great Melville, when every moment we thought the ship would sink, death and judgment then? What? With all three masts making such an everlasting thundering against the side and every sea breaking over us fore and aft, think of death and the judgment then? No! Well, certainly Jonah didn't. He was asleep through the whole experience. And so as we continue our examination of the book of Jonah, we pick up the narrative with emphasis on the runaway himself, which is, of course, Jonah. Someone once wrote, when a person decides to run from the Lord, Satan always provides complete transportation facilities. However, that's wrong, by the way, but however, uh, as we read the text carefully, we discover that the good news of the passage is that the Lord is in charge even of those who seek to run away. In other words, it wasn't ultimately Satan who provided the transport for Jonah. It was God who tr provided the transport for Jonah. It was God, the Lord, who provided the boat for Jonah so that he could experience how the Lord is indeed the God who made the sea. The Lord provided the storm so Jonah could see with crystal clarity that he could never get away from the Lord. The Lord provided all of it. Even his attempt to end his own life wouldn't succeed without the Lord's permission. So let's break it down this way. First, Jonah's folly. Second, God's answer. Third, our response. So first, Jonah's folly. Uh, have you noticed how, uh, how consistent the pathology of celebrity is? Have you noticed that? 
only if you've been living in a cave and never read a magazine or anything would you have not noticed that. But the pathology of celebrity is uh, very consistent. It's as if all the celebrities <clears throat> all got on the same ship or train and find themselves headed for the same destination, uh, despair and eventual death, or being forgotten, which is a form of death. So I find the contemporary fascination with celebrity crack-ups morbid, to say the least, my feeling is, why watch the same movie over and over again? Unless it's Casablanca. The ending rarely changes. It's the cast of characters that change. Well, Jonah's folly is no different. It's no different. He, bed, he boards a horse, a ship, for, headed for Tarshish. Now, Tarshish, by this point in Old Testament history, has become synonymous with fated journeys, uh, a plan destined to fail. So the very word Tarshish takes on this symbolic sense of an ill-fated pursuit, an ill-fated pursuit. So you might say of someone perhaps a celebrity even, that he or she took his trip to Tarshish. It was doomed to fail. In other words, Tarshish in the Old Testament is equal or synonymous with a shipwreck, a shipwreck. Notice here that uh, Tarshish is mentioned not once, not twice, but three times in one verse, verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, whenever the Scriptures use a word that many times in one verse, clearly there's some significance to the term beyond a geographical destination. So the question would be, of course, is the author here trying to make a point by mentioning Tarshish three times? So let's make a few observations about Jonah's folly. The first thing we find is uh, how easy the path of sin appears. How easy the path of sin appears, at least at first, at least at first. You recall that God had called Jonah to go north to Nineveh, uh, but instead he ran south to Joppa. Uh, Instead of going up to serve the Lord, he went down to serve his own rebellion. So the geography itself uh, signifies departure to a place one shouldn't be. Uh, And what did he find in his arrival in Joppa? Quote, a ship going to Tarshish. Now, you can only imagine, perhaps, how Jonah must have felt when he got to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. 
uh, <clears throat> he would have probably been mulling over in his, his, his sort of bitter reasons for fleeing from God. And his conscience likely would have been wrestling with his decision. And he would have, as most of us would perhaps, he might well have reasoned that if his course was wrong, then God would place obstacles in his path. But he doesn't. He gets a fast train to Joppa. And oh, by the way, when he gets it, there just happens to be a ship going to Tarshish. It's almost as if you and I were to drive to New York City imagining to catch a cruise ship going to Bermuda. Only one only travels out of that city once, say, a month. So what luck. We got there the day one was going to Bermuda. Well, luck has nothing to do with it. The ship is there because God parked it there for Jonah. So, oh, by the way, I'm headed to Joppa and there's nothing in my way. I don't get captured by robbers. I don't lose my money. I don't, nothing happens. So, there were no obstacles in his place to get to Joppa. There waiting for Jonah's flight west was a ship bound for a port as far from Nineveh as a ship could get, or at least as far as anyone could have wished to go. No one really knows where Tarshish was. There is no Tarshish today. No one really knows precisely where it was. But most people agree that it was somewhere on the uh, west coast of modern-day Spain. Now, you look at the map, and you see how far Spain is from Israel. And you get some idea of how, actu how far this journey is. Now, we have to remember that ships at this time were not ships as we think of them 100 years ago, 200 years ago even. Uh, ships all used oarmen. And they had sails, but they used those who rowed. I'll give you a clue about how slow this puppy might be going. So this is not a cruise ship with uh, the ability to travel at fast speed. And so he arrives in, in Tarshish, I mean in uh, Joppa, headed for Tarshish. And he must have thought, oh, the providence of God has placed just the ship I need in the port I have just arrived in. This is working out well for me. And verse 3 there is uh, rather terse because of the way it's set up linguistically, the verbs themselves. Uh, the verbs simply move from one to the other very quickly. There's nothing sort of getting in between them, so to speak, for any kind of reflection. In verse 3 it says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it. And so it's all a very action-oriented description of what's happening. It's bang, bang, bang. These things are just happening one right after the other. Nothing seems to be getting in the way of Jonah to achieve his purpose and his objective. He rose, he went, he found, he paid the fare. And it's interesting how sin works exactly that way many times, doesn't it? Uh, once we give ourselves permission to disobey God the sinful world is likely to make it very easy for a very rapid progression uh, 
in the path of sin itself. That Jonah may probably have rationalized his disobedience to God by claiming, look, God opened the door to Tarshish. So uh, what's so bad? What's so wrong? You see how easy it is to rationalize even our success in a sinful path when clearly it's not rational at all. That uh, folly, that kind of folly, Jonah's folly, reminds us, for one, that circumstances alone do not prove God's blessing. Circumstances alone do not approve or prove God's uh, blessing. In other words, the confirmation for the blessing of God must come from the Word of God, not from circumstances, but from the Word of God. Who does Jonah remind us of? Well, his situation, it seems to me, reminds us of the great King David himself, doesn't it? David's free fall into his grossest sin, the seduction of Bathsheba. Because chapter after chapter in the Bible relates David's long progress in faith. It's the great story of this young boy who grows in faith and walks in faith and becomes a mighty warrior and a great king and serves the God of Israel in such a wonderful way. And then, and then in three verses, his life comes to an abrupt pause. Three verses. Chapter after chapter after chapter of David's growth and righteousness and obedience, and then three verses, and it stops. In 2 Samuel 11, verses 2 to 4, it tells us what David did very succinctly. There's not an elaboration here. This is how sin works. We're told that David saw the beautiful woman. He sent a messenger. She came, and he lay with her. Bang. Done. His life would never be the same again. Israel would never be the same again. You see, David, who was neglecting his duty, remaining in Jerusalem while his army went off to war, as soon as he took his eye off his duty, his obligation of obedience to God, he put his eye on something else, a bathing beauty named Bathsheba. And before a second thought, when you read the text about David there, it's as if it was almost he was infected with some kind of disease they made it impossible for him to step outside the circumstance and see the futility and the folly of what he was doing. He just did it. He just did it. So before even a second thought had been given, he had indulged in a sin in certain respects that he would never be able to put behind him. Life-altering, to say the least. Well, you see, Jonah is doing exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing. And notice that everything we're told he does here, all these actions he takes, these steps he takes, he does so without ever one time praying to God. 
He never talks to God. He clearly doesn't even listen to God since he'd given him a very clear directive. But not one time are we shown Jonah on his knees praying, God, what should I do? What should I do? And God's slapping him around and saying, I already told you what to do, Jonah. Just do it. No, he never asks because he already knows what he's supposed to do and he doesn't want to hear anymore. So just as David was in the grip of lust, so Jonah also was gripped by resentment, anger toward God. He did not want to preach to the Ninevites. So there's an important lesson for us, I think, in this. And that is that you know, if we've been toying with a sin, toying with a sin, and we do that, don't we? We play around with it. We treat it less significantly than it really is. If we toy with a sin, if we have been toying with a sin and find that opportunity presents itself, we should not see the good hand of fortune, but the good hand of Satan. Toying around with sin, flirting with sin, which seems to go without obstacle, is a sign of satanic movement, not God movement. It's not difficult for the devil to arrange various opportunities for sin. It's very simple to do so. Jonah also shows us that once we've resolved to sin against God, any of us can act in the most surprising ways. We're always finding ourselves shocked by the way people respond or do or engage in things that they shouldn't be doing. But we really shouldn't be shocked at all. This is how sin works. His rebellion against the Lord involved him in the most irrational behavior one can imagine. We remember that out of his hatred for the Gentiles, he sought to escape the presence of the Lord and even the presence of the Lord's people. He never even consulted with anyone else who was a part of God's people, lest he be forced to prophesy in Nineveh. Because if he'd gone up to any Hebrew or anyone in the school of prophets and said, hey, I got this message from God to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel to, to Nineveh, to preach repentance in Nineveh, they would have all said, well, you should be going. So he didn't talk to anybody about it, let alone to God. What did he do? Rather than taking up the company of God's people, he took up the company of pagans. This ship was full of pagans. None of these people were believers in Yahweh. There were Gentile sailors. The word there translated sailor is the word salt, from which we get the expression salts, you know. He's an old salt, a salt of the sea. And that's the word used here. These were Gentile sailors, salts, if you will, whose ways were utterly opposed to the Lord's. Utterly opposed. And utterly opposed to the people of God. Notice how so he pays his own way, handing over what would have been a considerable amount of cash to do this. And he commits himself to an extreme expenditure of time. It would have taken at least a year to sail from Joppa to Tarshish. Now, a year is a long time in a boat that is pretty not that comfortable. 
in a boat where nobody knew how to swim. And let me tell you this, Jonah didn't know how to swim. The Hebrews didn't know how to swim. They were not water people. Why do you think the disciples were so petrified in the boat? If you know how to swim, you go, well, whatever happens, I can swim, grab a piece of wood and get somewhere. But you don't know how to swim. You know, it used to be the rule that sailors were never allowed to learn how to swim. That's right. Why? They wouldn't abandon ship. We don't have to worry about them leaving. They're going to stay on the boat because they can't swim. If you knew how to swim, you couldn't be here. The same used to have a similar rule that sailors were not allowed on board ship to go without shoes. Did you know that? Ah, I love these little interesting things. But anyway, uh, and this is up until the 19th century. Sailors were not allowed to on board ship to not have shoes on. And the reason was, if they took their shoes off, they could move about the boat without being detected. And they could mutiny. So it was a way of avoiding secrecy. So with shoes on, you made noise when you moved about the boat. So they can't wear shoes. So they can't mutiny. Right. Pretty smart. So you can't swim, you can't wear shoes. So here's the company of people he's keeping. He pays an ex uh, extremely uh, great amount of money to make this cruise. He commits himself to a large expenditure of time. And he willingly accepts the dangers of the venture, the travel. The Hebrews, as I said, were not seagoing people. One person noted that Jonah was prepared to entrust himself to an ocean-going boat rather than face up to God's call must have struck the hearers as proof positive of his mad determination. In other words, the people who first read this would have seen immediately, this man is out of his head. Look what he's doing. So what does he do? Verse 4, but the Lord hurled. Now that word hurl there is used of throwing a spear with a very precise intention behind it. In other words, you're not just slinging a spear, you're actually throwing the spear towards something, some object. It's the word that was used of Saul's hurling a spear toward David, you remember. And so we're told here that the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest of the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. It, it, literally what that says is the ship threatened to break into pieces. Break into pieces. This isn't just a windy day. The ship is about to break into pieces. One translator put it this way. He said, the ship was about to become a nervous wreck. It's as if the ship was crying aloud, wailing. And you see that exact expression in Isaiah 23, verse 1. The wailing of a ship. The crying of a ship when it's in extremity. You see, there's nothing providential about this. In other words, 
Storms come. He gets on a boat. Oh, by the way, a storm happens in his path, whatever. No, there's nothing providential that is generally an expression of God's governance of the creation. No, this storm didn't just happen to appear. We're told here the Lord hurled the storm like a spear toward its target. In other words, it was like precision-guided ordinance. You've seen those videos where planes, they get a laser beam, and boom, and you're thinking, wow, that's pretty good. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what God is doing here. He's sending a precision-guided ordinance called a storm to stop Jonah in his tracks. I like what one fellow said when he wrote, God takes careful aim at the chosen target, and with all his strength, he hurls his chosen weapon. This is the God we're talking about in Scripture. This is the true God. In other words, God has chosen his weapon, the weapon that he will employ in the case of every rebellious Christian. Now, the weapon he hurls at you may not be the weapon he hurls at me and probably most likely won't be the weapon he hurls at me because my problem isn't necessarily your problem uh, and yours isn't necessarily mine. And so what he might send to you might have little or no effect on me and what he sends to me might have little or no effect on you. He's very precise in his selection of ordinance that he uses to deal with his rebellious people. And so, as he showed in Jonah's case, he has this precise way of halting our sinful path and decisions. A very precise way of doing it. It could be, for you, a crushing job setback. Oh, boy. It could be a deadly illness. That could be the spear he throws at you or me. It could be a sickening of the soul that he sends to me or to you. These are his precise ordinances he's taken and hurled at you and me for very specific purposes and reasons. You see, it's common, for instance, for Christians to feel a plague in their conscience when rationalizing ways of avoiding doing God's will. The plague of the conscience, guilt, something's not right. And you see, a principle in Scripture is quite clear that a genuine Christian will never succeed in fleeing ultimately from God. A genuine Christian will never succeed in fleeing ultimately from God. At a certain point of God's own choosing, he will step in. And when he does, he will act with pinpoint accuracy. He will not let us fall away. We will not depart ultimately from him. Nothing can pluck us from his hand. Ultimately, his sheep hear his voice and they come. That's the great promise of Scripture, encouragement of Scripture. Even though he sends a precision-guided missile into my life or yours, it's to draw us back to himself, not to ultimately destroy us. 
So in Jonah's case, God sent a storm of such savagery that even the experienced sailors were driven to despair. Uh, God's clear purpose with this storm was to stop Jonah's westward journey in its tracks. We're told that the tempest was so mighty in verse 4 that the ship threatened to break up. In other words, God is not going to be mocked. He is not going to be mocked. And even his own people will be chastened in their flight from his will. So what appears uh, to be punishment without purpose in our lives is in fact always an act of divine mercy. Sometimes we think we're victims here, that we're being punished and there could be no ultimate good that could come out of this. But in actual fact, it's an act of divine mercy. And it may take us a lifetime to recognize that. And so that helps us understand what God does with rebellious runaways like Jonah and ourselves. He sends a message both then and now, and it's the same message. And the message is that his commands cannot be lightly rejected or successfully evaded, even though temporarily we may imagine ourselves as having successfully evaded them. You see, God doesn't intend for his sovereign plans to be disrupted. He has a plan. He is working his plan out, and nothing can get in the way of ultimately his plan working out. And he displays his sovereign rule through chastening events like the storm Jonah is now experiencing. Because the storm was meant to be a teaching event in Jonah's life. It wasn't there to just make him sick and throw up and, you know, whatever. It was there to teach him something. That's what it's for. I like the way one person put it when he said, He pursues us because he loves us and desires to draw us back to himself. It shows that in this pursuing grace of God, every child of God is to find true security. In other words, my security is knowing that he is not going to let me go. No matter what I do, he's not going to let me go. He's not going to simply look the other way. He's going to pursue me. In whatever way he needs to, he will pursue me, and he will achieve his goal. You see, God sometimes allows us to think that we can hide from him, we can evade him. He lets us think that so he can teach us how much we need him and how much he really does love us. Because he never gives up on us in the end. And he will pursue us until he finally draws us back to himself. You remember the the poem, The Hound of Heaven. That was the message of the poem, The Hound of Heaven. It begins with a child of God's foolish words of flight. But they end with God's message of pursuing grace. All which I took from thee, this is God speaking, all which I took from thee, I did but take, not for thy harms. In other words, I didn't do it to hurt you. No, all that I took from thee, I I did not but take, not for thy harms, but just that thou might seek it in my arms. 
In other words, instead of seeking it out there in something else, you seek it in me. So I'm going to take it away from you so you'll know the true source of what's best for you. And it's me, not that. Not that person, not that experience, none of it. He says, all which thy child's mistake fancies as lost, I have stored for thee at home. In other words, why, my wife used to say about having an affair, why would Michael eat ground beef when he can have filet mignon at home? That's what the hound of heaven is saying. All these things are nothing compared to what I can give you. They're stored at home for you. So why run out there like that and like a crazy person, which is exactly what Jonah is. He's acting like a madman. So what does God say? The last line of the poem is, Rise, clasp my hand, and come in. He is the hound of heaven. He has something for you no one can give you but himself. You see, some people are convinced that falling out of the center of God's will, whatever that means, but falling out of the center of God's will sets them on an irreversible course away from all that God had for them. Have you ever met people like that? They once walked with God and then something happened and now they feel their life is doomed to never reclaim what they once knew about God. And that's simply a lie from the pit. It's a lie. God has not let you embark on an irreversible course. He controls the course. You see, that kind of thinking forgets the pursuing grace of God. He is a merciful and forgiving God. He wants you back, and He is going to get you back. Remember, it's all grace. We became His child by grace. We live by grace. We'll die by grace. It's all His mercy and love. It's all. It's all Him. It's not us. It's all Him. So when we get on the wrong ship, and how many of us haven't gotten on the wrong ship? I hope all of us can say we have. If we can't, then we must be Methodists. Now, how many of us haven't, forgive me, how many of us haven't gotten on the wrong ship? And set sail in the wrong direction. I've got a fleet of ships that I've set sail on. That all took me in the wrong direction. And he pursued every time. He sank that ship. And that, that's not it. You see, Jonah is not the story of a man who was blessed by remaining in God's will... Rather, he's a man who was mightily used of God despite his unbelief in sin. And that's how God works. Because of the sovereign grace of God in his life. You see, Jonah's message is not even that we must avoid all folly and rebellion. Oh, yeah, of course, we were commanded to avoid that. Rather, the message here of Jonah for us is that when we've strayed, we should respond to the grace of God that calls us to repentance and new obedience. You see, <clears throat> the story is told of what's called the three 50-foot posts. Ever heard of that? Well, the three 50-foot posts. 
There are three 50-foot posts lined up at the small port of the island of Inagua in the Bahamas. And a visitor puzzled over the posts since they were on the land. Three 50-foot posts on land near the port of Inagua. Why are there three 50-foot posts in the ground at the port of Inagua? And the answer was that the channel was too shallow for larger sailing boats unless, unless. You see, the posts were placed so that the ship's captain could align the posts so that from his perspective, they were in a straight line, a straight line, appearing only as one post. Three posts in a straight line appears as one post, all exactly the same height. And when they lined up that way, where the captain could see only one post, he knew that he was in the narrow, deep part of the channel that would allow him to safely take his ship to the dock. Well, you see, God's Word plays a similar role, doesn't it? A similar role in our lives. Christ's church plays a similar role in our lives. When we see it as one, we're on the right path to dock the ship safely. When we see three, we'll crash the ship. All of these three opposing perspectives. But when the three are seen as one, we're on the right course. And the question that we face, each and every one of us face, is whether we're willing to obey God's word. See the post, the one post. Are we willing to obey God's word as it's made known to us? Perhaps uh, some of us have gone astray. Maybe some of us have gone astray or are going astray. But by God's intervening grace, He's made known to us our need to repent and return to Him. So the question really is, are we willing to turn to God's Word for direction? Or are we considering three possibilities and not just the one possibility revealed in God's Word? You remember Psalm 119, 105, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a life a light to my path. So are we willing to come to God, confessing sin, seeking power for new obedience? We're told if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Why is He faithful and just to forgive us our sins? Because of Jesus. His forgiveness is just because Jesus met the justice of God. So now He can justly forgive us. He can justly hear us. Without Jesus, he wouldn't be God. He'd be something else if he said, come on in, have a talk, confess your sin. No, 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 Jesus is essential for God to be just in hearing and forgiving us. Jesus is central to the whole thing. So if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of the work of Jesus Christ. 
His justice has been satisfied. And that's the gospel. So our unwillingness will never overrule God's sovereign plans. I got news for you. It never will. But as we turn anew toward God and the way of the Lord, responding to the gentle nudges of the Lord, and sometimes those nudges are sharp elbows, but nonetheless, He's nudging us along. If we respond to that, and if our hearts respond even to chastening storms that come into our lives, we'll find the path again. That's His point. He'll find the path again. We will find the way of the Lord. And that, we're told, is marked by blessing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us. We thank you for your desire to receive us and to continuously receive us back, even as we drift away and we rebel and we take a course of action that is not your desired end for us. But we know that you can hurl a specific storm into each of our lives and to get us back on course. And that storm that you hurl into our lives may sometimes be devastating. But nonetheless, it's for our, our good that you wish to call us and draw us back to yourself. Because you know, and we ultimately will know, that the only satisfaction that is lasting is that satisfaction which is hidden in you. All those things outside that appear to be so satisfying ultimately are only satisfying as they're found in you. So give us a new mind and a new heart to reconsider all the choices we make that we too might line up those three 50-foot posts that we might see the one word of God and obey it and thus find safe harbor we thank you for all these promises, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.